Well, brothers and sisters, remain standing and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to continue uh, the discourse that our Lord Jesus is having with the priests and the scribes there in chapter 21, and let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the preaching and reading of his word. Let's pray. Now, gracious Father, we come to this text of Scripture, Lord, seeing the aggravation, seeing the conflict that our Lord had on that Passion Week, Lord, that last week, those day before his crucifixion. Lord, we come to feast upon your word. We come, Lord, to understand. We come, Lord, to be changed by it. We come to look into it, Lord, as a mirror to our own souls that we might be judged by it, Lord, that we wouldn't be found lacking in any way. But, Lord, what we do lack, we pray that you would provide, that you would give by your grace, that you would take this word this morning that we Uh, Lord, see and hear this confrontation with our Lord Jesus Christ and that we would, Lord, understand it in a way that we can put it into practice into our own lives, Lord, as the authoritative word of God. Now, come and bless us with your word. Bless us with Christ. Lord, bless us with understanding. And Lord, amend our ways and make them pleasing in your sight. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. I want to begin reading, brothers and sisters, from verse 33 down through the uh, end of the chapter. Hear the word of the living God. Listen to another parable. And there was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. And the vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterwards, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. And when the vine growers saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. And Jesus said to them, did you never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. 
And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parable, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. And thus ends the reading of God's precious word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, this is the Passion Week. As stated last week, more than likely about 24 hours away from his crucifixion. It was a busy week for our Lord. All throughout the week, he is in one confrontation after another with those religious leaders. And Jesus had grown accustomed to confronting these religious leaders. He had done so throughout his ministry particularly that last year, as every year it seemed to increase in argument and in intensity. And this week it is just filled with this serious, serious confrontation. And our Lord is dealing with this in a way that brings glory not only to the Father, but certainly any who were hearing or listening to this confrontation. It really wasn't even a debate as it was a rebuke. They're learning of the power and the glory of God. And how these rogue religious leaders have been guilty of usurpation. How they have been guilty of usurping the glory of God and the the crown rights of God, if you will. Those sovereign rights of God and and formulating a a religion of self-righteousness. Let me have you turn over to Matthew chapter 23 and I just want to impress upon you and bring back to your memory just the intensity where the where this rebuke is going and how Jesus is confronting these modern day uh, or, or these contemporary religious leaders in the same way the prophets had to rebuke the religious leaders of their day uh, hundreds of years before. Look at verse thirteen. Look at the tone and the the uh, look how the Lord Jesus the intensity of the language he uses with the Pharisees. Look at these woes here. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. What a rebuke! Verse 14, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you devour widows' houses, and for pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will see greater condemnation. We just read and confessed this morning, did we not, that there are some sins that are more heinous and more grievous than others. And some of those heinous sins lie with the leadership of God's people. That when pastors and ministers and we hear these scribes and these priests, when when they take the precious salvation of God that he has gifted 
to them to preach and teach and to, to bring the nations into. And they take it and they just butcher it up and, and, and they just take something that's beautiful and make it ugly where no one enters into the kingdom of God. No one can find salvation because they have so obscured the path of salvation. These, verse 14, these widows, well, they were to be protected in Israel. There were laws given that they would be protected, that they would be guarded, if you will, that they were in one sense a very special class in God's sight. And yet, how do they treat them? How do they treat those that are precious in the sight of our God? Well, they devour them. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land and make one proselyte a follower. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. That's scathing rebuke. Not only do these proselytes become like their teachers, they become worse. And that's what happens when you follow men instead of Christ. When you instead of following God through the, the, the word that God has given to us as the ultimate authority. Look, these men were not an ultimate authority. No minister is an ultimate authority. No minister bears the weight of an ultimate authority. Only God does. And God has dictated to his ministers and to his servants how they should minister to his people. Now, the confrontation was over authority, but notice how in verse 16, Woe to you, blind guides. Who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. I mean, he goes through. But no, look, a blind guide? That's not what you want for a leader. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness but these things you should have done without neglecting the others oh they were so proud of their outward religion they were so proud to outwardly dress themselves and to and to have people see them giving that they they are strict in keeping with the, the tithe laws and, and Jesus rebukes them for all show and not really loving and desiring that justice and mercy and faithfulness. In verse 25, woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish and the inside is full of robbery and self-indulgence. A very clear description. I mean, Jesus is helping us understand just how put out he was with the religious leaders of his day. And, and even in our day, when this is true of the religious leaders of our time, Jesus 
still feels the same way about these sins. He hasn't changed his mind about them. He's not going to go back and apologize to the scribes and Pharisees for being hard on them and wink at the self-indulgent ministers of our day. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Wow. They are not who they say they are. They are not who they pretend to be. And God sees it all. Verse 29, And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. And of course, Jesus goes on to tell them that they are guilty of the same things. Now, our parable that I read is related to that, isn't it? We turn back to chapter 21. All look, this particular confrontation started over the Pharisees and the scribes becoming perturbed or upset with Jesus for cleansing the temple. And they begin to confront him about this and, and ask him, well, what? authority do you do this and Jesus feels no obligation to answer their question directly and in fact the the parable that we looked at last week Jesus gives them a parable of a father who has two sons and he tells both sons to go work in the vineyard which The father has the authority to do. That the father has the authority to command his sons to go do lawful work. And of course, Jesus refuses to answer their question because they refuse to deal with the reality of the situation that God is the only one who has the authority to command men what they should believe and how they should live and not the Pharisees and not the scribes. Now, last week I dealt with the the grievous sin of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. And I, I pulled out about eight or nine different markers, if you will, or flags that helped us identify if we could possibly be guilty ourselves of hypocrisy and self-righteousness. Now, Jesus continues this argument or this rebuke by giving them in verse 33 and following as the verse starts off with another parable. He's not finished with them yet. And in fact, he, when he teaches them the parable, what we find is that it is so clear, it is so convicting, it is so stinging to their conscience that they get it, that they understand it. And in fact, 
Jesus even asked them the question in verse 40. He says, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now, he asked the question. And you see in verse 41, their answer to it, that he will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. That's very similar to Nathan and David, isn't it? See, when Nathan the prophet went to David, you know, David had spent possibly about a year just in the doldrums of his sin, in the, in the torment of his own conscience, tossing and turning on his bed. He confessed that, that he agonized at night and had night terrors because his sin plagued him so. He had never truly ever had repented of that sin. And Nathan goes to him and you know the story of the ewe lamb, the the sweet, precious little baby lamb and how uh, uh, someone came in and just took that lamb from its owner and it just upset David greatly. But that story, that, that little parable that the prophet told to David was so clear, so convicting, and so precise to the situation that David condemned himself. And that's exactly what has happened here with the teaching of our Lord Jesus. They have condemned themselves. These rogue leaders understood what Jesus was teaching them. And they didn't like it. They did not like what they heard. They were not happy with being the guilty party. And our Lord doesn't stop there. In verse 42, um, he begins to give them another sort of teaching by moving from the vineyard to a construction site as I will deal with in a moment. But then Jesus continues now to drive a nail deeply, this gospel truth deeply into their consciences. Brothers and sisters, the doctrine that I want to lay before us this morning is this and then support it through the various texts of scripture. But our doctrine this morning is this, that God is no respecter of persons. God is no respecter of persons. God does what he pleases and he does not ask permission of men for anything. And yet that's exactly the way these men treated the ministry. And Jesus is is going to use this parable to condemn them as we have already seen, but he's going to convict them and he's going to show them that they were usurpers and rogue leaders just like their fathers were in the days of old. And Jesus is going to show them that the authority that he does possess is the authority of heaven itself. 
the authority of heaven itself. So let's look at this divine authority because that's the question. That's the question that they have asked him. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gives you permission to come and to cast out these sellers and buyers? And so, let's look at, let's support that doctrine through these uh, verses found mainly in chapter 21. Now notice, Jesus teaches that God alone is no respecter of persons in the parable of the two sons. It is God's prerogative to command any man, particularly his sons, to do what? Work in his vineyard. That he's teaching that God has the divine prerogative to call his sons to labor in his vineyard. Both sons, not not showing favoritism to one over the other, but both sons the father asked to go labor in the vineyard. It was lawful work. It wasn't sinful. The father was not asking them to sin in any way. What he had asked them to do was lawful. It was good. It was honoring to the father. And they both should have gone and labored in the vineyard. Of course, we know only one did. And that was the one that told his father, no, I will not go. But he was convicted afterwards and then ended up going to the vineyard. The other son, the second son, was very much like the scribes and the Pharisees. When the father came to him and said, I want you to go work in the vineyard. Yes, sir, I will be glad to go work in the vineyard, but did not go. And Jesus asked him the question, well, who did the right thing? Who, uh, who is the one? Which son honored the father? And, of course, they said the one who went and worked in the vineyard. Jesus is teaching them that God has the prerogative and he has the only and sole prerogative of commanding and sending workers out into his vineyard. These workers in these vineyards are like these religious leaders. They were the one that would go to put their hands to this work. They were the ones that were, would go and, and lay down, if you will, their lives in the teaching ministry of God to men, how they, what they should believe and how they should live. And that is, it's God's prerogative, beloved. Listen to me. Any of you young men out there are older men. If God calls you to the ministry, you will come. It's his prerogative to do so. He calls men to come and labor in his vineyard. But you've got to realize something. The, the scribes and the Pharisees were not, in, that, that didn't really uh, interest them. They weren't interested in the ones that God had chosen to go work in the, in the uh, vineyard. They were only interested in men corrupt like them. They were only interested in those men that were like they were. Self-indulgent, corrupt. Because what did they do? The parable of the landowner, what did they do when God sent his servants to them to correct them and to teach them and to realign them back with the will of the landowner? What did they do to them? Well, the text tells us they killed one, stoned one, and beat the other. So they were not interested 
in the real servants of the living and true God. The second way we support this is they just, that, that our Lord comes and if in verse 13 and starting in verse 12, notice that Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the table and the money changers and the seats of all those who were selling the doves. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. How does this support the authority and the prerogative of the living and true God? Well, Jesus cleansed the temple on the basis of God's word. These men, these leaders had allowed the temple, particularly the courts of the Gentiles, to be taken up with livestock, animals, so that they can conduct business. It wasn't wrong to conduct business as the travelers would come in for the Passover. They would certainly take and exchange money for a sacrifice and then have that sacrifice offered. That was not a a problem. The problem is where they were doing it. That was the problem. The problem is they had taken up the, the courts of the Gentiles and the places where people would gather to worship the living God and they had made no room for them. That was upsetting in God's sight. Jesus, by the authority of the word of God, the authority that he possesses, picked up the whip and he cleansed that part of the temple. On the basis of the word of God. On the basis that God says that this is my house and my house will be called a house of prayer. Thus, a house and a means of worship. This will be the place where my people will come, whether Jew or Gentile, and they will come and they will worship me and they will sing the Psalms, they will sing my praises and they will pray here and they will adore me. But yet you have taken up this ground with this merchantilism and Jesus cleansed it out. Money was more important than the souls of men. That's not shocking to us, is it? We see this politically, and we have seen it forever religiously, that men go into the ministry for the sake of gain, not to labor in the vineyard. And that was part of their problem. They loved the prestige, they loved the power, they loved their, this authority that they assumed to themselves, and they loved money. They loved money. That's why Paul even takes that and warns Timothy, a minister of the, of the new covenant gospel, right? He says, oh, Timothy, look, be, be on your guard, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of sin, all kinds of sin. It even had made the scribes and the Pharisees change or or addend, uh, make amendments to the laws of God so that they could rob their parents of their fortunes and do it in the name of God, in the name of God's glory, in the name of his holy name. And Jesus had to rebuke them for that as well. 
So we see that our Lord comes and he, he is walking by the, the authority and the power of the word of God and he comes and he cleanses the temple which is staggering to these rogue ministers. The third thing that we have to support this idea that God is no respecter of persons is found in verse 43. In verse 43, notice what Jesus says. He says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. Again, beloved, our God has the prerogative to take glory from one and give to another. That when the Lord's patience runs its course, we should not be surprised. We should not be surprised when God not only brings severe chastisement and judgment, but turns to call others to the work that he wants done. Now, let me say this about the kingdom of heaven. You can say, well, God doesn't need men. And you're right. He certainly doesn't need this one. And God could have established angels, glorious angels to come and labor in the vineyard and, and to, to preach the gospel and to call men to repentance. And you might say, well, that would even be better because we would all believe. I mean, we would just have no problem believing if a mighty angel was ministering the word of God, ministering the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But that's not what God in his wisdom, his infinite wisdom, that's not what God wanted. That's not what he desired. That's not what he saw as best for you and me and for the world and for the kingdom itself that he, he established and he put redeemed men in the places and offices that they might minister the gospel of grace to other sinners. Now you would think because there's this common relationship of knowing sin and the devastations of sin and the sorrow and misery of sin that men would be better ministers to others who are struggling and suffering and hurting and longing to have their hearts purified, longing to have their lives sturdied up, right? You would think they would have a compassion, but these did not. Remember the woes? They were all about themselves. They were not about, remember, they devoured widows' houses. You know, the two uh, special groups in God's sight, those widows and fatherless. The husbandless and fatherless are precious in God's sight. And when you sin against one of them, you are, you are sinning in God's face high-handedly. And see, beloved, that God has no problem now taking this 
covenant of grace that has been primarily hidden in the Jewish nation, if you will, and prophesying and showing that now this kingdom is going to go forth and it's going to go forth to those who are bearing the fruit thereof. He can take it away and give it to another. And this was offensive to the scribes and the Pharisees that heard this. They were offended by this. And notice in verse 46, they were so offended, they so hated Jesus that their hearts were filled with such malice toward him that they sought to seize him. They sought to arrest him. And the only reason they didn't is because they feared the people. Because the people saw Christ as a prophet. But they wanted him dealt with. How dare you? Now think about this. Because honestly, this, even this morning's sermon is related heavily to the ministry, to the gospel ministry, and, and to ministers as we put our hands to this glorious work. I mean, it's a condemnation for those ministers that do not act in accord with the will and authority of Almighty God. This ministry doesn't belong to any man. It belongs to God in Christ. Its ministry of the gospel is not for men to make things up as they go along. It's not the prerogative for men to change things up because certain audiences don't like it. Because they want their ears tickled in a certain fashion. This not the prerogative of men to change the doctrines, the glorious gospel doctrines of Scripture. And yet they were guilty of such. You know, all throughout the generations of Israel, God would have to come from time to time and just severely rebuke them and chasten them. I mean, and, and our Lord's rebuke to the religious leaders was always the, the most fierce. He, he never rebuked the sheep like he rebuked the religious leaders, the guides, oh, the blind guides, the, the ones who were supposed to be on the wall watching for trouble, watching for the enemy, the ones who were supposed to let God's people know, hey, this might be a problem. Hey, prepare yourself. Battle's coming. They were supposed to be the heralds of the truth. They were supposed to help God's people. What? Be fruitful. And what does he say? I'm going to take it away from you and I'm going to give it to another nation bearing what? The fruit. What's the whole point of this authority that is being exercised in the earth in this covenant of grace is that God's people would be a fruit bearing people. Remember the parable of the soil? Remember the four different types of soil? Only one soil, what? Bore fruit. 
And that's the goal, isn't it? That's what we ought to be looking for in our own lives. It's not about any religious emotion that swells up within us when we hear a sermon preached or when we sing a hymn, but it's how does my life reflect the, how does it adorn these gospel doctrines in my life? How am I, how am I bearing fruit that my heart and my life has been changed by the grace of God? We don't want to be guilty of being outwardly beautiful and inwardly dead and putrid. Isaiah, the, Jehovah calls the, the leaders dogs, dogs. He said, you're like a dog. You, you don't even, you won't bark. You don't protect, you don't bite, you don't do anything. You just slumber all the time. You're not doing what I've called you to do. You're just, you're like, you're, you're dogs. Jeremiah, I, I mean, again, he, he has such a scathing rebuke to the, the prophets and to the scribes and the, the, the priesthood, he says, you know, you, you, are, you are blind guides. You have allowed my people to go astray. And Jesus is dealing with that nature of a of, of priest, that nature of a minister. These are these men are in the lineage, if you will, of that type of person, that type of minister. They are about themselves. They, they are guilty of will worship. They are guilty of altering and changing and, 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 and taking the sacred teachings of Scripture and making it what they want it to be, what they desire it to be, what the people want it to be. Not unlike some in our day. When we talk about this idea of authority, I mean, Brothers and sisters, this world has gone crazy not being able to recognize authority. And where does it begin? I think it begins with the church. I think it begins with God's people. I think it begins with us, right? I mean, if there should be anyone submissive to the authority of God, isn't it those who have been touched by his grace? Isn't it the ones that have been touched with the saving mercies? Isn't it the ones that have been enlightened to the word of God? I mean, if, if we can't acknowledge that authority, if we continue to just give up that authority, what could we expect the world to do when we're supposed to be, particularly the leadership, salt and light? How have we acquiesced these responsibilities, these social and cultural duties we have to what? Stand up for truth, no matter what, no matter what the cost. Well, brothers and sisters, let me give at least three applications of how we might possibly be guilty of despising the authority of God. 
three applications, three points that I want to make that would help us examine our lives and, and really wrestle with the question, have I usurped the authority of God? And I'm certainly not going, can't delve into the whole realm of, of, of life, but I think there can be some application here, and I'm going to bring three of these out. Number one, let's start with the obvious. True religion, brothers and sisters, true religion is defined by that doctrine that's extracted purely and solely from the Word of God. It's not the doctrine of men. It's the doctrine of Scripture. It's what does the Holy Scripture, thus saith the Lord, not the minister, thus saith the Lord. What does the Scriptures teach? What does the Scriptures require of us? True religion, beloved, is the plain, pure teaching of God's Word. That's where God is honored the best and the most. Because when we begin to usurp the teaching of His Word, then we begin to deride and to negate His heavenly authority. When we put away the counsel of his word, beloved, we are setting aside the authority that God has placed over us in this life, the word of God. Adam did that. Eve did that. They set aside the word of God to follow the desires of their own heart, even though Eve was tricked by the crafty serpent, Satan speaking through that serpent, even though she was tricked, what was the temptation? To live by the word of God or to live by the suggestion that God is not really telling you everything. There are things out here that you can know and you can experience. There's so much wonder. There's so much, there's so much life out here, but you're never going to know unless you eat this fruit. Now, let me say that this way. I have witnessed, I've even seen it in myself. I've had to catch myself multiple times listening to that serpent's whisper. There's more to life than following God. There's more to life than this. You're missing out. You need, don't worry about the scriptures. Don't worry about the word of God. Don't worry about what God requires of you. You are missing out. If you, listen, that's why people leave their spouse. There's no good reason. They just, I want something different. Because the things of honor, the things of integrity, the things of keeping your word, the things that we should cling to and hold to because the word of God sets them before us as good and holy things to do. Well, we don't want that. We want something else. And it can be the same thing with children, with parents, at churches. Friendships. 
When we set aside the authority of the word for the friendship of another, for the companionship of another, for, for the, even the office, for an office, then we are guilty of the same thing that even Adam was guilty of. It's just a different time and a different place. But it's the laying aside of the word of God. We cannot, beloved, listen, turn to, to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. This is a, a confrontation that Jesus is having with the, the scribes and Pharisees. And I'm going to begin reading. Let's just... Let's back up to just verse 5. Now, he's, he's arguing with them over the commandments, honoring your father and mother. And he says in verse 5, he said, But you say, whoever says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you has been given to God. This is what I was speaking about earlier. This was the, the, the parents would give the firstborn their inheritance and the, the firstborn would get a double portion of the inheritance so they could take care of the parents. But what they did to get around taking care of the parents is say, but we dedicated it to God. We don't have any more money to take care of you. We dedicated that money to God. And so Jesus is rebuking them in verse six. He says, he's not to honor his father. It is, he is not to honor his father and his mother and by this, you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And after Jesus called the crowd to him, he said to them, hear and understand, it is not what enters into the mouth that defiles the man, but what proceeds out of the mouth that defiles the man. And the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? And he said, and he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into the pit. But notice what Jesus says in verse 13. Every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Meaning this, that these traditions, that these, uh, the, the taking of the word of God and changing it in order to, to meet their own personal lust or, or desires of the day, Jesus says, my heavenly father is going to come and he's going to uproot these ministries. These ministries are going to produce nothing. Remember chapter 23. They don't provide salvation. Why? Because they teach men that they must be saved by their own good works. Not by the grace of God in Christ who comes in mercy and offers salvation to, to all who would call upon him and repent of their sins and embrace him as Lord and Savior. In Matthew 28, how does our Lord leave the disciples? He says, listen, go forth and teach what the nations to what? obey me. 
teach them. That's your job. That's your role. This is what you ought to be doing. This is what you ought to be committed to. This is what you ought to be praying about. This is what you need to be doing. You need to be studying the word. You need to be feeding my sheep. And, and, and get off of these soapboxes of tradition. Get off of these man-made things that don't bear fruit. That's number one, brothers and sisters. We all have to make sure that we are following true religion, true faith, serving the true God, and not some imagination of some man or some woman or a group of people, right? No matter how strong their dedication is, cults can have the strongest dedication in the world. doesn't make them right. It doesn't make them right. It just makes them more dangerous. So, number two. Number two. Back over at 21. Look at verse 42. And Jesus said to them, Did you never read the scriptures, the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. And this came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That's a quotation Jesus brings out of Psalm um, Psalm 118. And the second point is that rejecting Christ, rejecting Christ as he is offered in the scriptures, as he is offered from Genesis to Revelation, as he is offered in the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, rejecting Christ is rejecting true salvation is rejecting true religion it's rejecting the very foundation and entrance into true religion brothers and sisters to reject Christ is to lose it all to fabricate a new Jesus and and listen every spring the History Channel will have a number of programs on the Jesus that walked the earth. It's just not the Jesus of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not the Jesus of Scripture. It's not the Jesus prophesied about in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It's not the Jesus we see coming in the book of Revelation. It's not that Jesus. It's not this Jesus. Notice the stone that the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone. Now, what was the purpose of this, this analogy? The purpose of this analogy is that, that in, in that day, every building had a cornerstone. And that cornerstone dictated the strength of the foundation and the, the, the squareness and how the building would be plumb how it'd be correct. Jesus is likened unto the cornerstone. He's the foundation. Paul uses it over there in Ephesians chapter two, where he says that Christ and the apostles and the prophets are what? The chief cornerstone and those stones that build this spiritual temple that Jesus is the cornerstone of. Rejecting the foundation and the capstone. The capstone, 
you have the foundation and you have the entrance. And to reject Christ as he has offered to us in Holy Scripture is to reject true religion. So you can't be a Christian. You can't be a Christian unless you have the right Christ. And there are many kinds of Christ out there. We have to make sure that our trust is in the right one. The right one. Now, where are you going to go? You're going to go to Scripture. You say, well, why can't I go to you, Pastor? Why can't I go to Pastor Otis? You can come to us, but where are we going to take them? We're going to take you to Scripture. Because the authority of salvation doesn't lie within us as men. It lies within the word and the authority of the word of God. Which is what this office that we hold is supposed to preach and teach and support. And call you to, why? So that you might be a fruitful people bearing the fruit thereof of the kingdom of heaven. Number three, we see there in verse um, 43, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. This, This is what we need to be looking for in our lives fruit. The fruit of salvation, the Holy Spirit, the resident of the Holy Spirit in us. Listen to me. It's easy to put on a show. It's easy to act excited about worship. It's easy every Blue moon, pick up your Bible and read a few lines. The question is, are we bearing fruit? Is the word of God working in us to make us kind, peaceful, truthful, faithful, more desirous for the things of God. Remember the first commandment, have no other gods before me. Become as zealous for the things of God. What did Jesus do? And this is not the same thing. He's not called us to go pick up a whip and go cleanse the temple. We don't have a temple. And we certainly don't have any whips, I'm sure. But yet the zeal of the Lord ate him up, so to speak. And what did he do? He went in and he cleansed the temple. And he justified his actions by quoting the word of God. demonstrating that this was offensive in God's sight and they had abused his worship. Brothers and sisters, when we become more zealous for God, let me, don't you think you will become more zealous for the things of God? Right? To be zealous for the Lord of glory, don't you think that would translate into being zealous for the things of the Lord and that there's a correlation between them. But yet we have too many people that will claim one and never bear the fruit of the other. And these are the people that our Lord is condemning. 
These are the ones our Lord is condemning. Jesus clearly states it, doesn't he? He says, I'm going to take it away from you. You're not bearing fruit. My patience has run its course. When you look back at the vine, the owner of the vineyard, what does he do? Notice what he did right there in verse 33. He planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a wine press in it. He built a tower. I mean, notice the provisions that God had provided for his people. He had given them everything they had needed for salvation. He had given them all that they, they lacked nothing in relationship to communion with him. He provided everything and he even sent his servants to them to help them with the harvest. And what did they do? They killed them. They beat them. They stoned them. And what the parable points out is how you treat these things is how you really think of me. See, you didn't love me, therefore you didn't love my servants. And it's, it's highlighted, is it not, when he sends his son. <laughs> well, they'll respect my son. My son will come in my place. He will speak for me. They will respect him, but they did not. Because, see, the root of it was they hated God. They despised God. They despised his authority. He he can't tell me what to do. Now, I can apply this thing all kinds of cultural situations. And, and, And probably need another sermon to do that. But there's all kinds of ways, brothers and sisters, that we can reject God and his authority by rejecting the very providences of our life and the things that God has put into our life to help and aid us, don't want anything to do with it. And we will and can and often do what? Convince ourselves that we are justified. And when that happens, then we are worthy of the rebuke that Jesus gives here, hypocrites. Hypocrites. You're you're, you're all nice on the outside, but your inside is dead. Brothers and sisters, I plead with you this morning. Look for fruit in your life. Look for fruit. If you don't see that fruit, you have to flee to Christ. Because only in Christ as the chief cornerstone, the foundation and the capstone, as Psalm 118 talks about, the capstone, only in Christ can you or I be fruitful. That's it. John 15, we'll look at that many weeks ahead of us. But John 15, what does Jesus teach? I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can bear no fruit apart from me. He's the vine. If you want to bear fruit, you want to be in this kingdom, you want to be in God's sweet favor, you want to be in Christ. I end with this. 
I end with a plea and I end with a, a note of encouragement. I think some of the most dangerous, some of the most grievous dangers the church faces today is not from without, it's from within. Paul in Acts 20, after meeting with those Ephesian elders, he told them, he said, as I go away, there'll be some rise up among you as wolves among the sheep. The great, brothers, and why? Because when men can come in the name of the Lord and not be of the Lord, he is dangerous. He's dangerous. And you have to be on guard with the word of God. You have to be a Berean. You have to take your Bibles and you have to read them. You have to say, so, well, now the pastor said this. I don't want to challenge him or anything. No, look, brothers, what is the Bible? Who's the authority? It's the word. It's the word of God. And our fruitfulness depends on it. My fruitfulness, your fruitfulness depends on what? The, the clear explanation of the word of God being read and preached and, and, and supported in, a, in everything we do so that we might what? Be fruit bearers and own this kingdom of heaven. If you're here this morning and what needs to happen, how do you, how do you get in Christ? Well, brothers and sisters, it's not hard. Right there where you're sitting, you can call upon Christ to forgive you of your sins. You can call upon him to be your savior because you know that you are a sinner. And sinners need to be saved. Sinners are not going to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Only those that have been saved by the grace of God in his son, Jesus Christ. He's the foundation stone. He's the capstone. He's the foundation. He's the entrance of the building. It's not the membership of a church. Don't trust your membership of the church. Don't trust that you're reformed. Don't trust your lineage. Oh, I'm a third generation Presbyterian. Trust in Christ. Trust in him. So I love the catechisms. Me too. But what I love about the catechisms, our standards, is because they help me know and understand Christ better. It's what they lead me to that is the most precious. It's not doctrine for the sake of doctrine. It's doctrine for the sake of the glory of God in Christ in us as fruitfulness. That's what it's about. Put your faith in Christ, you repent of your sins, and you follow him. You walk in his ways. And when you sin again, you repent. And he'll restore you, he'll cleanse you, and he'll walk with you along the way, which is what we're about to do here in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we...
we certainly admit that these things are simple. They're not hard to understand, and yet they are profound. They have profound effects upon how we see ourselves, how we see our habits, how we see our lifestyles. What we ask, O Lord, is that you would help us throughout the day and even throughout the week, the coming week, examine ourselves to look, Lord, where we might be able to shore our, our, our lives up with your word, that we would embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would walk in his ways and we would truly be lovers of God, that we would not be guilty of hypocrisy and guilty of looking pretty on the outside and being dead on the inside. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.